This morning we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 33. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. The words are also provided for you in your bulletin that you hopefully received when you arrived. And if you want to use one of the Bibles that is in the pew rack in front of you, if somebody would let me know what page that is, I forgot to... 751. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate that. Page 751, Isaiah 30. So whether it's your Bible, the Bible in the pew rack, or the words in the um, bulletin, whatever way, shape, or form, I encourage you to get that open in front of you. Additionally, just one note, if any of you came in late and you are finding it slightly chilly in here, uh, that is because our heat uh, is malfunctioning this morning upstairs. It is nice and warm downstairs in the fellowship hall. So if you find yourself uh, a little on the cold side and you'd, it'd be more conducive for you to being able to listen and follow along and without distraction to be downstairs, uh, feel free to make your way down there. But we shall enter into God's Word together. But let's pray and ask His blessing upon us as we do so. God, as we open Your Word now, we who will sing of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ today and throughout eternity, we will sing Your power to save. Help Isaiah 30 to be a reminder to us of Your power to save. And of the danger of trusting in other items, other things, other people to save us apart from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? Many of you might remember the lyrics. I'm not going to try and sing it, but to the 1980s classic Ghostbusters. Personally, I've never seen Ghostbusters. I want to see it. Uh, Little Steven, the little boy, was terrified of ghosts, so he was not going to watch that one. I think I could handle it now, but just haven't gotten around to it. But who do you call? Maybe not when ghosts are dealing, are, are in your home. But when you're facing great fear, the warning, the worry of looming disaster, Isaiah 30 forces us each to ask the question, where do I go when disaster is looming? Where do I go when disaster is looming? In fact, before we go any further, I encourage you, whether it be something family-related, health-related, job or finances-related, world-related, pandemic or national issues, conflict, division, strife, whatever it is, I want you to envision, imagine, what kind of disasters do you fear today? I'm going to be so bold as to assume that all of us walked into this room today, maybe not wanting other people to know it, but knowing in our hearts that there are things that we are worried about, uh, disasters that could be coming around the corner, and we fear what will come of them. So with those in mind, I want to set before you in Isaiah 30, 
the following argument. When disaster is looming, instead of tethering your heart to false protections, immerse yourself in the promises of God. Let me say it again. When disaster is looming, instead of tethering your heart to false protections, immerse yourself in the promises of God. We're going to walk through Isaiah 30, and we're going to ask four questions about ourselves and our hearts as we approach disaster or as we fear disaster is approaching us that will help us to hopefully calibrate our hearts towards trusting in the promises of God even when storm clouds are gathering. In fact, the question that each one of us faces is not a matter of will some kind of disaster or trial or adversity or tumult find its way to me? It's not a matter of if, but it is a matter of when. So for the first question that we will ask, as I've voiced already, where do you go when disaster is looming? What we see in Isaiah 30 as we begin is where the people of Judah went as they feared invasion from the north. In fact, follow along as I read just verses 1 and 2. It begins with God chastising or or speaking a word of discipline and even warning to the people of Judah. Now, let me help you understand the context, in fact, before I read. So, let's pause and not read it yet. The people of Judah, you might be, you might, that name might ring a bell, but you don't know what it is. Uh, Let me introduce you to the whole picture of the Old Testament in 30 seconds or less. The people of, well, we'll start the book of Exodus. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt under the mighty hand of Pharaoh and the powerful Egyptians. God, through the plagues, through the Passover, and through parting the Red Sea, delivered his people of Israel out of Egypt and set them apart to be his people for his glory as they would follow him and he would eventually guide them to the promised land. But he would give to them his law and he would give to them the promise of his mercy and his grace walking alongside of them and guiding them as his people. However, the people of Israel uh, uh, were, were given over to sin and, and, and generation after generation battled in uh, uh, their own unfaithfulness to God. And eventually the people of Israel splintered into two different uh, nations or two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, which uh, uh, diverted away from trusting in the God who had redeemed them and started serving other gods and, and worshiping the gods of their day. Uh, and then there was the southern kingdom, Judah, which ha- hung on a little longer, a couple centuries longer uh, than the northern kingdom. But they, they too were, were battling this war of will we trust the God who we say has redeemed us, but who we don't know if he's still going to be with us today. Maybe that rings a bell with you. So the people of Judah, who the book of Isaiah is written to, they hear warning that the vast superpower, the brutal superpower, the Assyrians to the north are about to come barreling down upon them, taking over, enslaving, killing, taking possession of. So the people of Judah say, well, what are we going to do? Let's go find the Egyptians. And let's try to make a treaty where they will protect us when the Assyrians come. It may have been a little longer than 30 seconds, but you get the idea. So God, speaking to the people of Judah, beginning in verse 1, says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, 
who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Egypt. We'll stop there. Egypt, who I delivered you out of. And now you're going back. You know, there are, I read just this week, a gentleman by the name of Matt Merker wrote five unbiblical responses to suffering, or I'll adapt it to us today, to disaster that we face the danger of falling into. One of which is self-reliance. I've got to put my head down and work harder and get myself out of this, which actually is an, an example of functional atheism, where I've got to get myself out of this. I can't trust God. There's the response of escape. I'm going to turn and focus on this thing and not think about the problem I'm dealing with, which escape causes us to look idolatrously at something else. Maybe you are given over to self-pity when hardship arises. Why does this happen to me? Or why do these people treat me the way they do? Self-pity opens the door wide, of, opens the door of our heart wide, inviting in anger and envy. Maybe you live in sinful fear. You just feel as if something disastrous is always about to happen to you. And this sinful fear breeds a heart of despair. Or maybe you live in simple unbelief in God's goodness, which provokes bitterness on your part because you feel as if God has not held up his end of the bargain in regards to you following him and entrusting him with your life. These obviously overlap with one another. At least I read them and I found evidences in my own heart of all five of these. But maybe I'm the only one. How do you cope with bad news? How do you cope with bad news? Do you abuse alcohol or prescription drugs or use illegal drugs as a means of coping? As a means of getting release from the pressures and the problems of the day? Do you check out from a tiresome day filled with frustration by simply mindlessly scrolling on your phone or binging for hours on TV? Do you give yourself to anger and acting out against those who are nearest to you? But we have to realize, all of us, and that the people of Judah have to realize here at the outset, is that we don't choose our pain, but we choose where we will go to numb the pain and to look for healing. And like the people of Judah, oftentimes we look to the wrong places. You might be familiar with Louis Zamperini, the central character in the best-selling book, Unbroken, and there's a movie made about it. Um... He was uh, an Olympic-level runner, served in the military in World War II. Whoa. What do you do when your pulpit falls down there? Okay. Let's just keep on. While he's serving in the military in World War II, he was on a plane that crashed in the Pacific. And Zamperini and two other soldiers were in this lifeboat for one of them sadly passed away after 33 days. Zamperini and the other one, they made it 47 days before they were captured by the Japanese and uh, interned as prisoners of war. But in this course of this 47 days, they faced severe dehydration, which 
is understandable because as many of us know, though they are surrounded by literally an ocean of water, you cannot drink it or it will dehydrate you and only bring greater trouble to you. Whatever it is that you seek out as a refuge in the storm that may come upon you, if it is something that is apart from leaning upon the blessed promises of God to his people, it might taste as if it offers relief in the moment, but it actually only serves to dehydrate our souls. Only the living water that Jesus Christ offers of himself and the sustaining mercy that he offers is able to sustain our souls in the midst of disaster. Life, following Jesus Christ, devotion to him as a disciple of his, walking alongside of brothers and sisters in the church family, seeking to help one another grow in the faith. It is not a sprint, it is a marathon. And apart from communion with God, apart from relying upon him, we are trying to run that marathon while hydrating on beer and soda. And we are inviting disaster upon our souls. Now, we cannot just ask, where do we turn? But we also have to explore, why do we turn in that direction? Why do we not drink the living water of Christ, but willingly entrust our hearts to that salt water that promises nourishment, but only brings dehydration to our hearts? Well, in verses 8 to 17, we're going to see why do we turn to false protection. So the first question we ask, where do you turn when disaster is looming? Now the second question, why do we turn there? Why do we turn there? Look at verse 8 and make a note of the significance of what Isaiah is saying here. He is not reporting this only for his audience in Judah, but also as a warning for all who would come after and even us today who would read this. Listen to verse 8. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Isaiah describes the spiritual condition of the people of Judah, and look at what he starts to see as answers come to light in verses 9 through 11. Describing Judah, he writes, they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, Leave the way, turn aside from the path, and let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. In their impoverished condition, the people of Judah did not want to hear about the God who they said had redeemed them. They believed themselves to be healthy in their trust in God. They did all the religious acts. They attended worship. They made their sacrifices. They said the right things. But when the Assyrians were barreling down upon them, they turned in the wrong direction. And is this not a danger that we all face? Where we functionally, we speak and we talk and we, we, we act in a, in, a, in, a, in a manner that seems and appears appropriate. But then when disaster comes, what we truly believe, what we truly trust is actually revealed. Do you see how verse 10 and 11 are so easily connected with us today? The people of Judah told 
seers and prophets, don't tell us these things. Don't tell us this, but tell us smooth things. Tell us the things we want to hear, not the things we need to hear. Here's my concern because I see it in myself so much. I I want to understand the authority and the message of the Bible over me as if it's a dish that I order at a restaurant. And so I receive it and I I welcome it in and and it's brought to me, but I take a bite or two and if it doesn't taste right, I'll give it to the waiter or waitress and ask them to go replace it. Go go, Go cook it again. I'll insist that a new meal be made. However, we cannot view the Bible as something that we taste and spit out if it does not taste right. We are not customers at a restaurant, but rather the way that we ought to understand ourselves and our relationship to the Bible is more like we are patients at a hospital. The words of this book contain an invitation to life everlasting via the medicine that is administered to us through it. Just like it would be preposterous for someone dying to push away a medicine that could heal them, we must have a posture of receptivity to the Bible and willingness for this book to change us. So the question I put before you is, do you want the smooth things of verse 10 or the Holy One of Israel of verse 11? Do you want the path that leads to life or the path that leads to death? The strange paradox of Christianity, maybe you're trying to sort through and understand what all it is about Christianity that is understandable in this day and age and in what it means to even be a follower of Jesus. The strange paradox of Christianity is, and, and its interaction with the world, is that the invitation to life in Christ is an invitation to die to self and entrust yourself entirely by faith into his hands. And the promise, uh, the lies that our sin nature and even that the enemy would present before us, that Satan would present before us, is a message of pursuing life that I want, the life that I desire, the life that I feel is going to most greatly satisfy me, is actually a life that leads to death. Death in Christ produces life. Life apart from Christ leads to death. This is something the people of Judah had a hard time understanding. May God give us the grace to understand it. Do you want smooth things or the Holy One of Israel? And hear this warning. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a number of years, maybe even a number of decades. Sometimes we might be like the people of Judah in that we learn a little too much to be dangerous. The danger that those of us who have been believers for a long time face is that we have the big thing, the the gospel, the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what it means for us as individuals and even our own sin. We understand that, but then we don't submit ourselves under the word and its continual authority over us. That reveals that maybe we don't have the gospel down as well as we think we do. The mature Christian, hear this out, brothers and sisters, and if you are a new Christian, understand this as you chart a path towards growth and and walking in obedience to Christ. Hear this. The mature Christian is not the one who no longer needs to repent over their sin or no longer needs the Word of God to confront and correct them in their distrust and dishonoring of God. 
The mature Christian is actually the one who welcomes the correcting, confronting grace of God from His Word. It's like humility. I was talking in growth group this past week about humility. You can spot the person who's growing in humility by them recognizing how far they have to go in humility. You can spot the one who is growing in the faith. One way you spot this is that they're the most visible, obvious repenter over their sin and welcomer of the grace of God's Word in addressing and comforting and correcting and changing their hearts. We easily look around at churches that are all over the place that have seemingly lost their way. They no longer accept the authority of God's Word as it speaks to a host of issues that are out of step with our present cultural moment. But we are entirely misunderstanding Isaiah if we use a passage like this, and particularly verses 10 and 11, to to shake our heads at those who treat Christianity in a manner that is out of step with the Bible. Isaiah has said these things need to be written down on tablets and stones so that you and I might hear this warning. We all must be alert that we can have a natural disposition towards giving our attentiveness towards the voices that wrongly comfort with salt water and not those that help us grow in godliness through the living water of Christ and His Word. We are all drinking water of some sort. Is it the living water of Christ or is it the salt water of that which rots our souls out in distrust in God? Maybe a good diagnostic test for you today would be to ask yourself, if you are, consider yourself a Christian, as I have a track record now of days or weeks or months or years or even decades of following Jesus, and I have, of course, across that track record, a number of events in my life that were unplanned, unforeseen, and were painful or, 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 or were trials or hardships or adversity that I walked through. In light of these things, do I trust God more or do I trust God less? It's a good diagnostic for us to ask. Moving on, verses 12 to 17 features a warning of judgment for those who trust not in God or the Holy One of Israel. You see verse 11, it says Holy One of Israel. Verse 12, Holy One of Israel. If you look down to verse 17, uh, or verse 15, excuse me, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. I think this line, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel is continually being mentioned because God is wanting His people to see, do you realize you are turning away from the God who has redeemed you out of Egypt, the God of Israel, to take you back? to Egypt. Saying, do you realize where you're turning? Where you're going? Listen to the clear laying down of boundary lines in verse 15, followed by a sad explanation of what Judah has done in verses 16 and 17. For verse 15 says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. 
Now, I want to pause here. I imagine you might be thinking, okay, Stephen, hold on a second here. You're talking about trusting God when bad things come upon me. Disaster might come my way. Um, Stephen, are you saying that like you don't take medicine or you don't have insurance on your home or you don't save money? Or, or I think, Stephen, if we were to probe more closely on you, we'd find a number of ways in which you prepare for disaster apart from God. And you would. So does this mean I or somebody that does such things as being disobedient to Isaiah 30? No, that's the cheap way of looking at this. Here's what Isaiah is getting at, all right? Here's the thing Isaiah is getting at. Isaiah, God through Isaiah, what he does in, our, in, in, in his word by the power of the Spirit applying it to our lives is he probes deeply into our hearts. And what he's exposing about the people of Egypt is that it's not a matter of them just simply running to Egypt literally. It's a matter of spiritually they have run to Egypt long before. And so the question before you is not do you have insurance? Do you go to the doctor? Do you take all these precautions in order to protect yourself in case of a rainy day or in case of some disaster comes upon you? The question before you spiritually is is your trust in God big enough that you can entrust yourself solely to him when that disaster comes? You see in Isaiah, or in in verse 15, God says, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. This is similar to what we saw back in chapter 28. You want to know what it means to trust God, to follow God? It means to rest in His grace. It means to receive it and to welcome the good news that you can get off the hamster wheel of life in trying to run as fast as you can in order whether to please God or in order whether to please those around you whose, whose praise you so desperately need and to rest in the fact that the God of the universe who has created you and who loves you and has set you apart for His good grace has set His affection upon you in a manner in which even if the Assyrians of your life are barreling down towards you and want to kill you, the love of God for you is so strong that you can rest in that grace and know that His provision and protection will be with you. But the people of Judah were unwilling, as the end of verse 15 says. Verse 17 features a sad switching around, or it's an echo of Leviticus 26.8 and Deuteronomy 32.30. What is being symbolized is a reversal. In in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy there, it says, instead of a thousand shall flee at the threat of one, it says, uh, and and, um, one shall cause the thousand to flee. And so basically what we have here is a reversal of the promise of God's blessing for His people. And Isaiah is saying there is great power in the one who trusts in God. But there is great distortion of facts and failure to trust and shame in the holes that are exposed in our idolatry and the one who does not trust. 
This is so difficult for us to believe and embrace because we want might, we want power, we want prestige. But in Christ we learn, as I said, the way to life is death to self. The way to hope is not in building on the foundation of the shifting sands of our day, but on the foundation of God, our creator, and strength. So we've asked two questions here. Where do I go when disaster is looming? Why do I go to places apart from Christ? Now let's ask a third question. What does God promise as I fear disaster? We're going to see this in verses 18 to 26. I want you to see something. So verse 17 features this like, like statement of fact about this um, reversal of the blessing of God upon the people of Judah. But then look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. If I'm honest, the therefore that follows in verse 18 seems shockingly out of place. It is shockingly out of place. You see, it's a promise of blessing after, after a description of the people running away from God. And it is shockingly out of place unless it is revealing an absurdly believable promise of God's grace. And maybe that is what you need as you feel trapped in the shackles of whatever false securities you have trusted in. Maybe you don't need a God who who gives you what you deserve and who just bears down upon you and smile or, or in frown and scorn as you have transgressed against him is a God who does not redeem you from the sin that you have committed against him. But a God who we see in verse 18 is an astonishing promise of God rising to redeem the enslaved that can only be better understood as we stand in the shadow of the cross of the Son of God, who met our false sense of self-righteousness with His death for our true self, our sin. Look at verse 18 there. You will turn away, you will run, you will all these things. In verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. It's literally like, like an animal that like, when it gets frightened and it rises, rises up, raises up. Um, in, in like defense, the Lord raises up upon his people, but he does so to show mercy. Maybe that's the invitation you need to hear, brother or sister, who you have felt as if you're detached and distant from God for so long and you feel as if you cannot return to him because his scorn awaits you. Perhaps you even being here and reading this and hearing this passage today is actually an exhibit of him raising up to show mercy to you. Here's what we have to gather around and see. Like adventurers who have uncovered a treasure map that leads not to a treasure chest of gold of this life that rusts and decays and rots, Isaiah 30 leads us to a vault of the promises of God's goodness and mercy that is thrown open for us to walk through, and for us to live in. Listen to the future promise of verses 19 to 21. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. 
He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. So verse 19, the Lord promises to preserve his people even even after the disaster that they fear comes upon them. In verse 20, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. The next blessing is the Lord's comfort in the people's tears. And then blessing in verse 21, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Verse 21 is the blessing of receptivity to the precious word of God. Do you praise God for the gracious gift of being able to understand his word this morning? Even as we hear this passage. That is God's grace. Him rising up to show you mercy. What about his word in general? Do you hear how he hears your cries? You might think, I want this experience of God. I want the one who wipes the tears from my eye, who raises up and should show me mercy. Where do I find this experience of God? Where is this treasure found? Look at verse 22. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. It is found in casting your trust in him, not in word and in thought, but in action and in unfiltered devotion. Casting away those false idols, those false gods that you hold dear. If you've seen the movie, The Polar Express, it's about all these kids boarding a magical train to go to the North Pole. It's a bunch of kids who are coming of age and don't know whether or not they believe in Santa and they're going to go see that he is real. You get the drift of the story if you've seen it. Well, the story features one little boy who comes aboard and he's from a family that had known only poverty in their life. And he had never received much for Christmas. So eventually he got a gift while on this magical adventure to the North Pole. He, he, he got a gift that had his name on it. But what he realized and what he soon came to see and others were sharing with him is that he had to give up this small gift that he had received in the moment that he had come across that he had taken possession of. He had to give it up and in giving up that small gift he would find a greater gift that would come his way. He was so reluctant to let it go. He said things like, in my house you don't understand Christmas doesn't come. Gifts like this are few and far between. And maybe that is where you are, where you say, I've got this Egypt that I'm clinging to amidst the fear of disaster that is imposing upon me. And you say, I don't know if I can give it up. And yet God in his grace says to you, when you are willing to give it up, I come and I wipe away the tears. I give you hearing to hear my word and I care for you in mercy. Truth is that the things that we cling to apart from Christ, those small gifts, they are idols that cannot keep the promises that they make. But we give them up and walk into the vault of God's goodness, as verses 23 to 26 say. 
Listen to these. In verse 23 and 24, the people of Judah who fear they're going to be overrun, they are promised something far greater. He will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. So he gives them food and drink. He gives them flowing streams of water in verse 25. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of great slaughter when the towers fall. And then lastly, he promises light that outshines darkness. Verse 26, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. And the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So take the Egypts of your life. What are they? Love. No matter the love that you desire, whether in a close friend who you can bear your soul to or in the arms of a spouse who you draw near to, though these are good gifts, they are woefully incapable of caring for you like the God who exalts himself to show mercy to you. Do you want protection from an external danger or fear? As I reference, God gives us good gifts for these things, insurance, medicine, rainy days funds, but these are like... Like a spouse, though these are good gifts, they cannot meet the demands of our souls. And all of the external protections that we can muster cannot satisfy the need of our heart to trust in God above all else. Jerry Brashear is an author and professor of theology at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, announced this past week that cancer that he had previously had has now returned again. This week he began treatment for this cancer and listen to how he wrote of his approach to walking through the disaster by leaning on the promises and cares of God. Brashears writes, when I had the melanoma before, I laid out four principles to guide me. First, when I go to the past to look for less, I go to the past to look for lessons, not regrets. It's easy for me to shred myself for what I did or didn't do. In the present, I build plans based on what I actually know so I can act wisely and responsibly rather than feeling helpless. The future is where the what-ifs are. Satan dwells there. Don't dwell with them. And fourthly, Jesus is in the present. Look for him. Like the bush in Exodus 3, he is easy to miss. The promises of God rest in a vault, inexhaustible in size, but the door to that vault is Jesus Christ, and we enter that vault through the goodness and mercy of Christ. But as we enter that vault... The last question we ask as we conclude is, how will these disasters that haunt me end? Jesus doesn't promise that the storms will go away. So what will come of the storms even as I trust in Jesus as my shelter in the midst of the storm? Verses 27 to 33, we find that God marches forward against the nations. I'm not going to read all of it just for the sake of time, but I want you to see uh, verse uh, 28 His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. The picture here is that God is telling the people of Judah, the Assyrians you fear, I'm going to walk them like a dog. Know that my sovereignty over them. And God promises to bring justice upon the Assyrians who seek to commit brutal atrocity and injustice against Judah. God is not a God who acts vindictively against those who do not know him. God is a God who acts appropriately 
upon those who would harm his people. And the greatest enemy that we have that would seek our harm is not an enemy in flesh and blood, but the enemy of our own sin and our own death that awaits. But in Christ, our sin is atoned for, and in Christ, our resurrection, death has no final word on us. You know what's fascinating about Isaiah 30 is that the people of Judah were instructed. You see verse 29, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. They're instructed to continue celebrations similar to the Passover. This unfolds as we see it's a principle that makes its way through centuries and through the people of God and the word of God. The singing and rejoicing of the rescued and redeemed people of God is at the heart of their waging war upon the disasters that await them. That's why we sing songs like afflicted saint to Christ draw near. We sing and rejoice today because God has both proven victorious over our greatest enemy and he will prove himself victorious over the disasters that would threaten our destruction. Because of Christ, we can sing, not just when the Assyrians of our life are not barreling down on us and we feel peace, but we can sing all the more loudly even when the the disaster is approaching. I saw this modeled this week in another example A friend of mine's wife was recently diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. He's a fellow pastor, four kids, ages between college graduate and high school senior. He wrote an update this week on the online blog that they're keeping, of course asking for prayer that God would use the medicines and treatments that his wife will receive to bring healing, but also asking that people would lift them up, that their family would be joyful in the Lord as they navigate chemo and the holidays. And he concluded with a serious but hopeful reminder that we all belong to our God in body and in soul, in life and in death. What Isaiah 30 shows us is that when we hear the approaching drumbeat of armies surrounding us, it is not our ultimate destruction that these armies are marching towards. It is their own. Look at verse 33, for a burning place has been prepared indeed for the king and has been made ready. It's pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. The Assyrians think they're marching towards the destruction of Judah. They're marching towards their own destruction. The cancer, it will one day be eradicated. The anguish that haunts you, every day that anguish is expending itself and it will reach an expiration date. It will be destroyed by the mighty hand of God who protects his people and promises to redeem them from the enemies they face. So when disaster comes, who are you going to call? May God give us the grace and the perspective to live in the fact that he has already come for us. May he give us the grace to live by the same power by which he raises dead souls to life. By that power, he will one day vanquish every enemy that threatens your destruction and mine. When we run to Egypt, we try to put Jesus back in that tomb. But he is not in that tomb. He is coming and he will prove himself victorious over all the disasters that would threaten your harm and mine. So brother and sister, when disaster is looming, instead of tethering your heart to false protections, immerse yourself in the promises of God. Let's pray together. God, we conclude now having seen from your word the exhortation that Isaiah even gave us as, as he wrote, as you inspired uh, and you, you, you gave the instruction, write this that others may hear it. May we hear this warning of false hope and may we hear this blessing of future glory and of present peace.
that is available to all of us who are in Christ. So Lord, help us as your church family to rest in the shadow of your wing and help any who do not know you or have trouble giving over that gift, that, 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 that little thing they think will give them protection, whether it's reputation or, or relationship or, or, um, or, or applause of man or of, 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 of health and well-being in this life. Help us to entrust those false senses of security to you and to rest in the abundance of your goodness, your mercy that has roused up to protect us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. It is in his name we pray. Amen.